Steve Palmer here from Lawyer Talk, coming at you with another legal breakdown. And uh, by now, I'm sure everybody across the uh, globe understands what the legal breakdown is. I am taking uh, legal concepts, stuff you hear on the news, stuff you hear commented on, even maybe in your own experience, in your own case, in your own life. Uh, these legal concepts often sound so complicated. They sound so confusing. People, lawyers particularly, use big words, fancy words, legalese, if you will. And my job here is to break it down, make it simple, because as I like to say, uh, I like to make things simple and almost everything can be made simple. Now, the breakdown here today is a uh, I'm going to beat the dead horse a little bit more. I'm going to beat the Rittenhouse case just one more time. And it's it's a broader topic, though. So I think it's worthy of discussion. It's worthy of a breakdown. There was a lot of comments on the fact that Rittenhouse decided to testify to take the witness stand in his own defense and tell the jury his story. Now, now, the commenters, the uh, the talking heads, so to speak, both legal experts and otherwise, uh, all had a very similar opinion that this was extremely rare, that this hardly ever happened, that uh, defense work 101 is you never have your client take the witness stand uh, and tell the jury his or her story. And, you know, the reality of that from the defense standpoint is it, that's hogwash. I, I've been trying cases for the better part of 26 years, and I'll tell you this, when the defendant needs to testify... Uh, the defendant should testify. When the defendant does not need to testify, the defendant should not testify. Now, that uh, sort of demands the next question is, when does a defendant need to testify? Well, uh, like most things in the legal arena and maybe even in the real world, it all depends. Let's break that down for a second. The prosecution in a criminal case has the burden of proving their case beyond a reasonable doubt on each and every element of the offense charge. What does that mean? That means they have to offer proof. They have to bring in testimony. They have to bring in evidence. It could be documents. It could be witnesses. Uh, sometimes uh, it's a combination of documents, witnesses in the form of, uh, say, circumstantial evidence. But they have to be able to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, let's say that uh, the prosecutor has their turn. They offer evidence, and it's not quite sufficient. Maybe it's just enough to get over... Uh, uh, the hurdle where the judge isn't going to dismiss it. Uh, but, you know, it's pretty scarce. It's pretty sparse. There's not much there. There's not substance to it. In that type of situation, as a defense attorney, we may make the decision the defendant need not testify. He shouldn't testify. He can only make his case worse if he testifies. We have an argument that they didn't prove their case, and we need to ride that horse instead of trying to establish uh, some some other theory of it. Sometimes, a they-didn't-prove-it defense is the best defense. I'm not saying it's uh, the perfect defense because there is no such thing, but it is sometimes the best defense, and, and even beyond that, it is sometimes the only defense. And in that situation, say they didn't prove um, uh, a guy's motive or what really happened or there's details that are left out, well, I would much rather uh, get up and say, well, they didn't prove their case, folks. Uh, you can't convict on this. They've got the burden of coming into a courtroom. They've got the long arm of the law. They've got the heavy hand of the government. They've got whatever analogy you want to use to come in here and bring it down, bring their wrath down on the defendant. And they didn't do it. They brought their best and they fell short. That's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not the kind of evidence we would rely upon in our most important affairs. If somebody brought that nonsense to you and you were buying a car, when you were buying a house, you would say, I want more. And in this case, ladies and gentlemen, we want more. You should want more. We all want more. The whole courtroom is out of order, as Al Pacino would say. Now, the other scenario, the opposite scenario may be, like, say, Rittenhouse, where we have a defense, where we're not really disputing that they can prove that somebody uh, is dead, that the that our client 
uh, killed that person who is dead, but we're now saying, no, it was in self-defense. Now, there's a nuance here that we should discuss, that we should break down, and that is the prosecutor in Kenosha in Wisconsin had the burden of disproving self-defense. In other words, uh, it wasn't the the defense burden to show that he acted in self-defense, but rather the prosecutor had to disprove it. That said, self-defense cases are perfect examples of where and when defendants often take the stand to explain some of the crucial elements of self-defense. And from the defense perspective, that is how the defendant felt subjectively, internally. What did the defendant experience? What did he see? How did he feel? Did he really feel subjectively, truthfully in his soul that his life was in danger if he didn't act, that if he didn't use deadly force? Now, you could rely on the prosecutor's uh, lack of proof on that. But really, there's one person that can bring that kind of evidence into a courtroom and look a jury in the eye and say, here's what really was going down. If you stood in my shoes, here's what you would have seen. Here's what you would have felt. And here's what you would have done, too. That almost demands a defendant testify. I'm preparing for a self-defense case in Ohio right now as we speak. Literally, as we speak, I'm preparing for a self-defense case. I have every intent to have the defendant testify. Now, I could change my mind on the fly. Maybe we get halfway through trial and the prosecutor's really blundered it somehow and I I don't have my client testify. But right now, he is going to have to testify because there's only one person that can bring that evidence and I'm not going to be satisfied with uh, the notion that the prosecutor's got to disprove it. Uh, Look, we're we're in Columbus, Ohio, right here at 511 South High. I'm telling you that because we went for a decade or so with Coach Jim Tressel in charge of the Buckeyes. Jim Tressel played a very defensive strategy, a very conservative strategy. Uh, if he got ahead at, at, in the first half, we would come out in the second half and things would grind to a screeching halt. He wouldn't put his foot on the gas. He, wouldn't, uh, he would rely on his defense and hope and pray that he got through it. He didn't want to take any unnecessary risks. Uh, and I understood that strategy. It was nail-biting. It was nauseating. It was painful to watch. It worked most of the time, it seems. But uh, in the context of a criminal case, that's a similar analogy. I mean, we could uh, play it really thin and say, well, the prosecutor didn't prove it and then argue that point. But if you want to take the ball over the goal line, if you want to establish your theory of defense, oftentimes, say in a self-defense case, you have to take the stand to do it. Another scenario where you often, if not always, have to take the stand, and never always, but often would have to take the stand, uh, is in a uh, an alleged acquaintance rape case where, you know, two parties meet uh, in a dark, smoky bar with jazz playing in the background. Uh, he says, uh, you want to go to my place? She says, sure. Or maybe she says, you want to go to my place? And he says, sure. Well, uh, one of them uh, thinks it's one thing. The other thinks it's another thing. There's a rape allegation in the morning. And uh, the one says it's consent. The other says, nah-uh. Well, uh, here again, that almost demands uh, that the person who is claiming there was consent actually get up and testify and explain why. Now, is that required? It is not required. It is absolutely not required. The prosecutor still has the burden of disproving, uh, in, in many senses, to disprove consent. But uh, it, it gets very thin. It gets very uh, Jim Tressel-esque, uh, to use the analogy again, not to... Uh, really assert consent, why you felt it was consent, what you saw, what you perceived. Now, there's other ways to do it, to be sure. You don't always have to take the witness stand. Uh, And many, many, many times I have not had my client testify either uh, in a a consent uh, rape allegation or otherwise. But 
it is, I guess the point here is that it is by no means a hard, fast rule, a starting point that the defendant not take the witness stand. Now, it seems like everybody who was offering comments on Rittenhouse was saying the opposite. And I was thinking to myself, what? I mean, maybe I'm just wrong. Maybe I've been uh, doing this all wrong for 25, 26 years. Uh, and then I heard one thing at the end of the trial. I heard Richard's, uh, the lawyer, the lead attorney, rather, or co-counsel, I think, as he said it, uh, he explained himself as to why Rittenhouse took the witness stand. And they did something called a focus group. They they, they did mock trials. They, they had a fake jury hear the evidence, and they had their client testify in one of the mock trials and not testify in the other mock trial. And, you know, if you to understand what a mock trial is, you're basically doing a um, a pre-show show. You're you're presenting the case as you think it's going to unfold to a fake jury to get their opinion on what they would vote, how they would vote. And he said, overwhelmingly, they got the better result when Rittenhouse testified. And that just tells you what a jury wants to hear when they come into the courtroom on a criminal case. Uh, there's a story I have with Mark Satawa, uh, one of the early cases we worked on together. Uh, we both, I sort of inherited it from my uh, late great law partner, and um, Mark and I were working it up. And my initial reaction was, our client should never take the witness stand. Mark's initial reaction is, the client has to take the witness stand or he won't win. And uh, he, as it turns out, in that situation was, uh, well, we'll never know who was right and who was wrong. But uh, his attitude was, the guy had to testify my attitude was no way. Now, I had a reason for that, um, and that was I just thought our guy came off a little bit odd, that it wasn't the best uh, – well, he wasn't going to make the best witness. Now, Mark's, ex, Mark's solution for that was we need to get focus groups. We need to get um, uh, acting coaches. We need to get some help to uh, shore up his presentation, that is the client's presentation of his testimony. Now, we ended up resolving that case. We never had to get so far as to actually know whether his testimony would have saved the day or not saved the day. Uh, even if we could have. Um, but the point is, it, it wasn't hard fast in either of us uh, when we started that case. And I suppose right here, I should say something about Mark. Mark Sattel was a great lawyer up in Detroit, Michigan area. Uh, we work together all the time. We actually do consulting now for other uh, defense attorneys. And, and the idea is we, we actually do some of this work up for them. We provide a focus group. We give them a breakdown of uh, uh, our breakdown of what the evidence is or what we're seeing as objective or at least in theory, objective bystanders, but lawyers with uh, trial experience. And uh, and then we, we put it in front of a focus group form and uh, give them a report on what is going to work and what's not going to work. And uh, the one thing we have found, the one thing Mark and I have found, is that you never know until you know. Uh, we get surprised every time we do a focus group, and it's worthy of doing. I never uh, go into a case anymore with the idea that I already know what is going to happen or what I need to do until I have Mark or somebody like Mark help me do a breakdown on it, help me do a focus group on it. It is the only way to go. Now, for more information on that consulting side of things, go check it out, criminaldefenseconsultants.com. Uh, now, back to uh, the Rittenhouse commentary on whether he should have or whether he shouldn't have testified. Uh, a couple points I want to stress some more. Uh, one is this. It is always better if your client does not have a huge prior criminal record or, say, skeletons in the closet. And the reason is this, there are rules of evidence, and the rules of evidence permit certain attacks on a witness's credibility based on things they've done in the past. Primarily, we are looking for two categories of past or prior acts. First, we are looking for felony convictions, typically within 10 years. So say you're 50 and you committed a felony at 20, I'm not too worried about that, 
most of the time the rules of play at trial aren't going to let the other side, the prosecutor, bring that up if my client testifies. Uh, but if you have a client with felony convictions inside 10 years, uh, say robberies, thefts, uh, rape, murder, mayhem, pick your felony, that becomes fair game just because there is a felony conviction. Now, here's how it goes down. The prosecutor gets to ask the client, haven't you been convicted of a felony? And the client says, yes. And it, it doesn't have to go much farther than that. So usually if I have a client who's testifying and he's got a prior felony conviction, I take the sting out of that. I, I would ask my client myself on the witness stand, I would ask, have you been convicted of a felony? You have. Yes, you have. All right, that was when? Well, that was about eight years ago. I had some trouble. I had a felony conviction, yada, yada, yada. In other words, we bring it out and we offer sort of uh, an anticipatory, in advance explanation about the felony conviction. That way it doesn't become a sandbag surprise attack on cross-examination when the prosecutor stands up and questions my client. So we do our best to take the sting out in advance during direct examination. Uh, it, this is probably worthy of a little historical discussion. We would say, we would ask them, why felony convictions? Why does it matter so much? And, and really, what, before I even get there, we're delineating. We are separating felonies from misdemeanors. Felonies mean more, are more significant in our justice system than misdemeanors. So it's a big deal if you have a felony conviction. And this goes way, way back. And if somebody had a felony conviction uh, and they were testifying in the old common law in the days after the Norman Conquest or even before uh, in uh, England, uh, then they would raise their right hand and they would swear. And I heard this story one time. I, I confess, I don't know if it's true, but I like the story. Uh, you, you would raise your right hand and swear. And if you had a felony conviction, uh, there would be a mark on your right hand that would be shown. Maybe it was like an F or something that had been burned in there because you were forever, your credibility is forever tainted with your felony conviction. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a good story. And a prosecutor told it one time to a jury in a case I was trying. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the idea is that a felony conviction is a big deal. It's an important thing in our system, and somehow our uh, our rules of evidence have deemed it uh, relevant just because. It doesn't matter what the felony conviction is. It could have been for a property crime. It could have been for a rape. It could have been for something completely unrelated than what the trial is about now. It doesn't matter. If it's a felony conviction, then the system has deemed it worthy of uh, bringing it up as a possible way to impeach uh, my client's credibility or any witness's credibility. The other big category of prior acts, of other things that the prosecution or one side can ask the other's witnesses about, are, are things that aren't necessarily felony convictions, but they're just bad. They just show that you're not believable. They are acts of dishonesty. You're a liar. So you have you committed this act, maybe it's a misdemeanor, but it was a forgery or a theft. Anybody who's ever filled out a job application has probably had to answer this question. Have you ever been convicted of a felony or theft offense? And it, we just deem certain crimes to be, we, the, the law would call it malum and say they're bad just because they're bad. And a theft offense is one of them. You're just It's just not a good thing. It goes directly to your character, your ability to tell the truth. At least that's what the rules of evidence would say. That's what our common law has said. And that is pretty much the law of the land in most states, as far as I know. And other, other things you might look for would be, um, uh, say you lied on a tax return or you filed a false document sometime. It doesn't even have to be a conviction. It could be just an act. It doesn't matter. Those are these are things that even if not convictions of for crimes, even if not felonies, the other side can bring them out to show that you shouldn't be believed now. Those are the kind of things that we look for. Now, 
Those are the two broad categories. There's some nuance in there. We don't need to get into the weeds of it, but those are the big categories. And here's why I'm bringing all this up, because I heard some comments after Rittenhouse about why and how he was able, unlike others perhaps in his shoes, to take the witness stand and testify with impunity without getting impeached by these other acts, by these other crimes and uh, felonies. And this, the specific one I'm talking about was on PBS in an interview of uh, a woman named Incha Rahman, that's I-N-S-H-A, Rahman, R-A-H-M-A-N, from the Vera Institute of Justice. And here's what she had to say about why Rittenhouse was able to take the stand. Here we go. Let's listen to her. And I would say if there was one moment that swayed this jury, it is that Kyle Rittenhouse took the stand. And let me actually just say a few words about why the vast majority of people who choose to go to trial, and remember that's still only 5% of over 15 million criminal cases filed in this country each year. But the reason why most people don't actually take the stand in their own defense is when you do so, then the prosecution has the right to bring in your entire conviction history, past arrest. So you got arrested as a kid for a little bit of marijuana or for... Okay, let me stop it right there. First of all, uh, she has started with the premise that the vast majority of uh, defendants do not take the witness stand in their own defense. I don't know if that's true or not true, but it's probably an overstatement. Again, there is no... Uh, there is no hard, fast rule here. There are times when it makes sense to take the witness stand. There are times when it doesn't make sense to take the witness stand. There are times when I don't care if my client has a prior record, uh, say it's as long as his both arms put together. It doesn't matter because the kind of crime that he's charged with now uh, still demands that he take the witness stand. And would it be better if my client does not have a prior criminal history and my client is squeaky clean and is therefore not going to be impeached by felonies? You bet it would. Um, but it's not necessarily the only reason or even the vast majority of reasons why somebody would choose not to take the witness stand. Although, it, you know, it, this is one of those where statistics tend to um, whitewash some of the details uh, in, in, in individual choices in individual trials. And then she goes into a, a, another conclusion here that is just patently not true, that the prosecutor gets to dive into every nook and cranny of the witnesses or the defendant in this case. Uh, the defendant's prior record all the way back into the juvenile days. And again, this is not really the case. This is not true. Uh, there, Remember the two broad categories. The two broad categories are felony convictions, typically within 10 years, and acts of moral turpitude, things that just show you're dishonest. And she's, she's really painted this broadly by saying that uh, every person who takes the witness stand can be impeached with every little thing they've ever done. Uh, she goes on with this. Hold on. Let's listen to what she has to say. Or driving with a suspended license and suddenly taking the stand to testify in your own defense, to tell your own story about what really happened. Your credibility is impugned by the prosecutor over things that have nothing to do with the incident itself. And so. All right. I'm going to stop it again. First of all, I've never had a client, a case, any situation uh, particularly not a murder case where a client's prior driving under suspension charge was relevant to show that he or she was not credible. Now, I've had plenty of misdemeanor traffic offenses where my client has been charged with multiple driving under suspension charges. And then for other reasons, uh, the prior convictions for driving under suspension become important because each one uh, maybe can be enhanced or make the next one more serious. And th that's not coming in to show that my client's a liar. It's coming in to show that my client... Uh, has a prior record, and that, that's relevant just in of itself. But it, it's just not true. It's just patently not true, at least not in Ohio, and I'm not aware anywhere else, not in federal court, 
if you have a prior conviction for driving under suspension, it's going to be used to show that you are somehow less credible. And I'll go one step further. If I had a prosecutor try to do that, if I had a prosecutor stand up and actually say, say Rittenhouse has a prior driving under suspension charge and therefore he's not credible, you shouldn't believe him because he's a habitual driver under suspension. Well, it's an overreach. It's nonsense. It's crap. It doesn't sell. And a jury's not going to buy that. Um, I, I do believe that, that we have the trial rules and then we have the reality world where it, it's it, you can say that you, even if it were true that th- that kind of crap would come in to show that my client's not credible, I would turn that on the prosecutor and say, what are you talking about? You're saying somehow he didn't act in self-defense, somehow he wasn't in fear for his safety because he drove while under suspension or because he had marijuana in his pocket as a juvenile? What a bunch of crap. Now, if my client had a string of prior violent felonies, that may be a different story uh, for sure. But she's painted this too broadly, I think, to make a point that I don't, I'm not sure it adds up. Let's listen more. For the vast majority of people accused of a crime, the, it, it dissuades them. It's a huge discouragement from taking the stand when you know that if you live in a community where police presence means most people have been stopped and frisked or arrested for something, even something minor, tiny, that has nothing to do with the charges in front of the jury, they're just not going to testify. And that's a huge privilege that Kyle Rittenhouse had in this case. All right, I'm going to stop it again. This again, she's doubled down on this. She is now saying even more so, uh, if anybody who's ever been stopped for anything, stopped and frisked for anything and been convicted of crimes, well, that's going to be a, that's going to have a chilling effect. That's going to impact their decision to testify. That's just, that's nonsense. It just is total nonsense. Um, And the other thing we should really kick around is I'm not going to take any issue with the fact that uh, there might be heavier policing in some communities versus other. Uh, we're going to break that down maybe some other time. But um, the point is, is that uh, if if you've got a prior felony or prior record that is worthy of impeachment, were, that it falls within the rules, well, then you've sort of bought that yourself. I mean, if people have brought that on themselves. If you, you know, if you if you go through your life and you've got prior felony convictions that are uh, that are haunting you. Well, you've done it, I suppose. Now, there's some relief in most states also, I should add, that you can have your record expunged. You can have your record sealed, um, and it, it can be treated as if it never happened. Not all felonies, to be sure, but many can be, at least the nonviolent ones. Uh, and again, she has sort of really pushed this, this, this theme or this argument to make the point that somehow Rittenhouse is, is privileged and therefore won the trial because he didn't have a prior record. Uh, A couple comments on that here in a second after we listen to some more. And it's one that he and his defense attorneys worked um, in a way that obviously, uh, you know, resulted in their favor. All right. So uh, just to to sum this up a little bit, Rittenhouse didn't have a prior record that was used to impeach him or impeach his credibility. And you can look at that in a couple of different ways. I mean, it is what it is. He didn't have a prior felony record. Um, I have no idea if he had any prior traffic record. I'll bet he did. And it wouldn't have come up even if he did because it probably wasn't admissible. He, even if he had like minor uh, alcohol-related offenses or drinking offenses or even drunk driving offenses, that stuff generally doesn't come in at a trial to impeach a witness's credibility. And even if it did come up in a case like this, I would I, I would push right back Ms. Rahman and say, I, bring it on. I, I, let that let the prosecutor try to show that somehow my client didn't act in self-defense because he had a minor uh, possession of marijuana or alcohol offense, or he drove under suspension or was caught speeding a bunch of times or was pulled over and stopped and frisked a bunch of times. Um, 
it's a prosecutorial overreach, and I would I would ram it right back at him. I would say, what are they saying? Like, what kind of smokescreen is that? You know, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China, as they say? You know, it's it's completely irrelevant. And beyond that, in a self-defense type case, a prior felony conviction, even if that did exist for those who were felt chilled and not able to take the witness stand, you know, I have less concern in this kind of case about prior convictions than I would in other types of cases. Now, if it's a prior felony that involved a shooting of a suspect who was uh, theoretically attacking him, I mean, if the facts were somehow similar and th- those facts were to come out, and they don't always, uh, maybe I'd have some concerns. But uh, I've actually tried self-defense cases where uh, suspects have uh, defended themselves against police because they didn't understand what was going on. I had police busting into a client's house wanting to make an arrest or something, or my client just started swinging with wild haymakers and they charged him with assault on a peace officer. We tried it on self-defense theory. And my client, I mean, let me just say, <laughs> he wasn't the Boy Scouts or whatever the saying would go. He had, a, he had a long, long record. Well, the jury understood, and they understood exactly what was going on. Uh, and, and I actually turned that and used it in my favor. I'm like, look, they want, they want you to find him guilty somehow because he's a criminal and he's engaged in criminal behavior and they were serving a warrant on his house. And, you know, maybe that's a reason why he might be mistaken about what's really going on. Maybe that's a reason why he might think that other criminals are actually there to try to hurt him. So it's just never a hard, fast rule. I'm not saying everything, like the implication of what she's saying is generally has some merit, that it can be a chilling effect on somebody's decision to testify if they have a prior record, to be sure. I'm not disputing that. But it's more nuanced than that. And there's certainly not enough there to draw the kind of conclusion that I think she's trying to draw, not even think, I know she's trying to draw, which is that Rittenhouse was somehow privileged by the fact that he didn't have a record because of his upbringing. And, you know, I just don't buy it. Uh, I I don't buy it at all. I would need to know a lot more before that, but uh, I don't need to take that on. All I'm saying here is that it is not fundamentally true that everything you've ever done from juvenile times all the way up to present comes in against you if you take the witness stand at a trial. The rules of evidence carefully regulate this stuff. And I can tell you right now, from what I saw that judge in Rittenhouse's case, he would not have permitted a bunch of crapola uh, coming in improperly in violation of the rules of evidence. So we have once again beaten the already dead 20 times over horse of the Rittenhouse trial, but I think it was for a bigger cause, for a bigger question uh, to testify or not to testify. When and how does... uh, does this kind of background stuff come up if, if a defendant does choose to testify in the context of his or her criminal trial? I hope we have made it simple. We have taken the otherwise uh, overbroad, whitewashed analysis, broken it down, made it simple. Why? Because I like to make complicated things simple, and almost everything can be made simple here at Lawyer Talk Legal Breakdown. And with a couple more uh, quick comments, we'll wrap it up. First, uh, check out the other shows in the series, the Legal Breakdown series. I'm getting a lot of great feedback on it, so I plan on keep uh, keeping it up, and uh, there'll be a lot more to come. Also, we're doing the Lawyer Talk Q&A, where you can submit questions at the lawyertalkpodcast.com. Uh, send me a question on the uh, email interface there. I'll do my best to answer it on the air. Sometimes I just answer them privately with an email uh, because maybe they're not appropriate for the air or maybe somebody wants it to be confidential. As always, if you need some legal help, some real legal help up uh, at the office upstairs at the law firm, ohiolegaldefense.com. That's 614-224-6142. Plenty of ways to get a hold of us here at Lawyer Talk, where we are off the record, on the air, at least until 